Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Welcome to another episode of Bird Table. It's the first week in March, by some reckonings the first week of spring, and at least here in Dublin it's starting to get a little less like this, and a little more like this. Though we're probably not out of the woods yet. With me as always is Niall Hatch, spokesperson for and stalwart of Birdwatch Islands, a man with a truly compendious knowledge of all things bird-related. Niall, welcome, and perhaps kick us off by reminding us what you and Birdwatch Ireland do and why the casual birdwatching public should support you. So Birdwatch Ireland, we're the largest conservation charity in Ireland and we're dedicated to the preservation of Ireland's wild birds and their habitats. Because I always say you can't just protect birds in isolation, you protect them by protecting the places that they live and the food supplies that they depend on and the water and the air and the soil that they need to survive. And ultimately that we humans need to survive as well. There's a very strong aspect of making lives better for for human beings here. Uh, we're for birds and for biodiversity. Uh, so again, it's about food chains and, and maximising the potential for birds to be able to thrive in that kind of environment. Now, everything we do is backed up with scientific work. Uh, we're, we're a registered charity and so we raise money to allow us to do this work. And we have teams of scientists who are compiling statistics about birds, running conservation projects to try and, and secure some of the most threatened species. We do a lot of lobbying work when it comes to the powers that be and the decision makers to, to try and uh, make them sure that they live up to their responsibilities and do the right thing. We're very active um, at European and international level as well. We have a network of 30 volunteer-run branches across Ireland run by superb people who give up so much of their time and their effort to hold events. And I was flabbergasted just recently to realise that uh, we run on average 450 free public events each year through our branches and through the wonderful work that they do, which is is, uh, really amazing. We produce a range of magazines. We have a lovely magazine called Wings, which comes out quarterly. That's our main membership magazine. We have a, a junior magazine called Bird Detectives. Um, I'm the editor on both of those, uh, along with my colleague Colleen McLaughlin, and we produce those and go out to our members. We also have a um, series of posters, and we do lots of media liaison work. So, and I'm not, not, not forgetting, of course, we have a, a network of 20 nature reserves around the country too. So if it's anything to do with birds and wildlife, uh, that, that's us. That's what we do. And also trying to get more and more into the education sphere as well. Coming up very soon, have an international um, environmental education conference that we're, we're doing with uh, some of our partners. So here at a national level, we're extremely active. Um, we have about 15,000 members across the country. So we're forced to be reckoned with at this stage, but uh, we need more members. And my thinking always is if uh, someone is interested enough in birds to be listening to our Bird Table podcast, they're certainly interested enough to join Birdwatch Ireland and support our work. I think that's very important. So the message is simple but vital. Get on over to the Birdwatch Ireland website, which is Niall? It is www.birdwatchireland.ie. A big button up there in the top uh, right of the screen saying become a member. Just click on that you'll see all of the details and just to assure everybody every cent that we receive through our membership goes to support that conservation work uh, if, if people who love birds don't stand up for them who else will that's the way i always think it so it's in your hands thanks niall now as we speak 
It's early spring. There's a lot going on, as always, at this time of year. Noel, tell us something about the comings and goings on the bird scene. Well, it certainly is a very exciting time of year for, for bird watchers and for nature lovers, Connor, because yes, it's very hard to define exactly when winter ends and spring begins. It's not a set date in the calendar. It's not something that we can force upon nature. Nature does things at its own pace. And this, we can certainly say at least, is the season of transition and change. Uh, we tend to, at this time of year, get some of the most unsettled weather of the whole year here in Ireland because uh, weather patterns are changing, temperatures are shifting, they're going up and down, we get sudden cold spells. Obviously, this can play havoc with birds and their migration systems. So at the moment, there's two separate migration things happening. We have our winter visitors, most of which are still here in Ireland. So we get huge numbers of ducks, swans and geese, wading birds as well that come in, particularly our wetland areas um, during the course of the, the winter. Most of them arrive in autumn actually and numbers move around during the winter. And for them, we are the warm further south, you know, because they come from the Arctic regions mostly where it is bitterly cold at the moment, inhospitable. So they have wings, they have the luxury of being able to fly away from there and come to their on their holidays, I suppose, to, to balmy tropical Ireland. Uh, we think of ourselves as being very cold in the winter, but in fact, Ireland at this latitude is very warm, surprisingly warm in the winter. We, we, you know, at this latitude, if you consider we were at the same latitude as Hokkaido in Japan, for example, we should be a lot colder by rights if it wasn't for that Gulf Stream and uh, the current warming us up. And the birds take advantage of that and, and use the opportunity to access unfrozen feeding areas and get lots of food. So those birds now, they're starting to switch into breeding mode. They're starting to think, oh, maybe it's time soon to think about heading back towards our breeding grounds further north. Um, so what they're doing now is they're trying to put on as much weight and as much, as much nutrition as they can to fuel that journey back, first of all, but then also to make sure that they're in tip-top condition when they actually finally do reach um, where they do reach back to, to their breeding ground so that they're ready to go straight into nesting, laying their eggs, raising their chicks. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of resources for them to do that. So that's the mood they're in at the moment. Specifically, Niall, we've just come through a very busy storm season with some particularly violent uh, weather incidents. Uh, looks like it's over, but uh, we can't be sure of that, of course. Um, how does this impact on the bird population of Ireland, Niall? How vulnerable are birds to the kind of weather conditions we've been experiencing in Ireland recently? Well, it, it, you're right. It, it does affect birds in, in many ways. It can be quite serious for them, of course. Uh, very often, if birds were in the middle of migration and a huge storm system hits, that can catch some of them up in it and blow them off course and take them out to sea, perhaps. What we normally find at a time when migration isn't actively happening on any serious scale, as, as would be the case with this storm at this time of year. What happens is most of those birds will just hunker down. They'll do their best not to go into the open very much. They'll hide in bushes and in trees, particularly the small little, little birds, like the finches and, and warblers and so on. They'll try to stay hidden. But of course, the longer the storm goes on for and the wetter and windier the weather is, the harder it is for those birds to find food. And they need to eat very regularly in order to keep that internal furnace going to keep them warm. Because... Feathers are usually nice and waterproof and they can hide them in the bushes. So they should do okay in terms of the actual wind and the rain itself. However, there will be a chilling effect there that will keep them cooler. And if they go for too long without food, they'll perish. They just won't survive the, the, the cold, particularly at night. And when it's raining, for insect-eating birds particularly, birds like wrens and goldcrests and coltits, birds like that, they find it very hard to find food. And many of them will perish. There's, there's no two ways about that. Uh, it's really a survival of the fittest. And only the, the, those small birds that have had a good winter season so far where they've managed to get plenty of nutrition find good areas to shelter they'll be all right most likely but some of the other ones that are below par maybe aren't in the best condition or feeling in any way sick or undernourished they may well perish so storms or a particularly sustained or violent storm season can actually be a problem for bird populations 
Oh, it definitely can, yes. And if that happens to hit during migration, it's even worse because those birds will often be in flight at the time or far away from safety or for security. So that can be an issue for them. Uh, so definitely. And one of the things that we're seeing with climate change is the weather, pat weather patterns are becoming more unsettled. Uh, it's less predictable when these bad weather events are going to happen. I mean, Ireland, okay, obviously has never been famous for having great weather, let's face it. But the fact was, a few decades ago, you could predict more accurately what time of year these events were likely to happen. What we're seeing now in Ireland is we're seeing big storms happening happening in the summer. We're seeing the sweeping over seabird colonies, for example. We're seeing um, waves crashing up onto beaches and, and rocks and so on in the summer. That, that really never used to happen. We're seeing a big, bigger increase in, in summer flooding as well. Something that really brought that home to me recently was looking at the statistics from the Shannon Callows, where until fairly recently, it was one of the last main strongholds in Ireland for the corncrake, a uh, ground nesting bird. It would nest in the floodplains of those meadows there. And the reason that was so good for them there was because that, that land, by its very nature, can't be intensively farmed. So it was old-fashioned hay production, really in tune with biodiversity absolutely great and still wonderful for lots of birds but what happened was that uh, summer flooding was happening every year the, the callows were flooding the, during the summer normal in the winter but not in the summer and um, what happened was the nests and, uh, and eggs were washed away and uh, eventually the, the birds just perished because although the adults were surviving they only lived for about two or three years and then once they're gone the, the corn are gone with the population now it used to be historically until quite recently that summer flooding in the Shannon callows was a once in every 20 year event um, it's gone to being now I think it was nine out of 10 years recently had summer flooding and that's that's a direct impact of climate change so that's one of the ways that the weather patterns and changing climate more specifically can affect birds if you think as well also about about our seabirds and what they're facing at the moment so many of the, the seabirds that will be returning in a, in a few months to Ireland to breed birds like our puffins and guillemots razorbills birds like that at the moment they are many of them out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean particularly the puffins they spend their time bobbing around in the sea between Ireland and Newfoundland um, just like corks on the water they spend most of the time out there and when bad weather hits them. Firstly, it's very hard to assess what's happening because keeping track on them, they're dispersed over such a wide area, it's almost impossible. All they can do is just sort of ride it out. They just have to stay in the water and uh, just hope the conditions don't get so bad that they drown. Uh, now, they're very adept swimmers. They can still find food where they're out there. So they tend to survive that actually better than land birds do. But uh, it does give me, I suppose, a newfound respect for them when you see what they have to put up with. And, you know, these storms, they have a big impact on us humans. Just imagine if you didn't have a roof over your head, you didn't have clothes, you didn't have food in the fridge, uh, how tough that would be. Uh, and that's what birds face all the time. Travelling with Expressway and your free travel pass is made easier with a reserved seat. When booking journeys at expressway.ie, make sure to select seat-only reservation free travel scheme and pay just €2 Euro per trip to guarantee your seat. Bookings can also be made from ticket machines in stations and priority boarding will be given to those who book in advance. Travel without a booking is still more than welcome, if you prefer, provided we have space on board. Take it easy with your free travel pass and expressway.ie. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times.
speaking of respect, I want to reintroduce an old friend of ours on this podcast we've mentioned before, um, covering in particular two of the subjects that we've uh, just touched on, migration and fuel requirements, uh, the bar-tailed godwit most formidable of birds, not imposing in terms of its size or its appearance, but it is a record holder in as much as it uh, migrates annually from Alaska to New Zealand. That's as near as damn it from one end of the earth to the other. Um, A phenomenal achievement for a bird, which it's not a huge bird, put it like that. I saw some research just recently from the Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research, um, which found that the average weight of a bar-tailed gobwit on leaving Alaska is about 485 grams, that's just over a pound, and on arrival in New Zealand it weighs 215 grams on average, so it's lost more than half of its body weight. But the fascinating thing about this is that scientists, of course, who love to measure things and uh, quantify, of course, um, have calculated, uh, knowing what they know about the uh, about the, the efficiency of, of, of the bar-tailed gobwit's flight, its aerodynamics and so on, and knowing what the calorific value of the, uh, the fat that the gobwit has available to it to burn, um, they have calculated that uh, the maximum a bar-tailed gobwit should be able to fly non-stop is about four days. But in reality, we know, uh, because, we, because you know, there have been gobwits tracked through uh, GPS trackers and so on, uh, that uh, the gobwits fly for nine days continuously. This should not be possible, and it's something of a mystery to science. They have not been able to account for this the incredible stamina of this bird. Now, that surely is fascinating. It is, absolutely. It just shows the extremes that birds can cope with. This seemingly fairly boring or uninteresting little creature. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a streaky brown waiting bird. We get them here in Ireland as well. Um, I think they're beautiful, but, uh, but a lot of people wouldn't really necessarily appreciate them. The real, the real bird watchers' birds. Um, but the, yeah, the population that, uh, that breed in Alaska and winter in New Zealand have the longest um, non-stop migratory journey of any, any land bird. And if, you, if anyone has a globe handy or a map of the world, take it out and have a look at where Alaska is and where New Zealand is. It's a huge distance and just see that there is literally nowhere that those birds could stop en route even if they wanted to they can't stop there is no land between those two places and uh, so they just have to do it in one go and you're right they do it in on average about about nine days non-stop flight just blasting across the ocean uh, and we even get cases where some of them run into storm systems and decide better head back to Alaska they're already three days into their journey but they have to head back and try it again feed up again and head back and yes the, 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 the stress that this has on their bodies is quite remarkable and we do understand we're understanding a little bit more about how they do it because yes they have these fat reserves and they, they, they build up this fat and that does help to fuel it but as you said it's not enough to fuel the whole journey and it turns out that what they're doing is they're metabolizing other parts of their bodies as well uh, they obviously need flight muscles to be able to fly so they're very strong and developed and that's the one thing they won't they won't be they won't sacrifice they, they need to keep their wings and their flight muscles flapping uh, but when they're flying they're not eating on that journey they won't eat so actually they can let their digestive system atrophy part of their intestines are reabsorbed back into their bodies so they can use the energy from those. Their reproductive organs aren't required when they're doing this. They won't be breeding for several months. Um, so what they'll do is they'll let those atrophy as well. They reabsorb the nutrients that are in those organs. Um, even some birds we know now, their brains even shrink when they absorb some of the uh, the nutrients for those. So they're at the very limit of what's physiologically possible for an organism. They are really basically sacrificing everything that isn't absolutely essential for that migratory journey. You know, the, the actual power they need to fly with and whatever systems they use to navigate themselves. Because that's another mystery as well. How do they even know where they're going? It really is quite remarkable. 
And that always sticks in my mind when I'm um, watching waders here in Ireland. But, you know, this time of year, there are lots of them on mudflats and beaches and estuaries all around Ireland. And uh, you'll see people casually strolling through their flocks and making them fly up in the air or letting their dogs run at them and scaring them up and thinking they're not doing any harm. This can be catastrophic for these birds because um, although a lot of those birds won't be making as long a journey as the, the bar-tailed goblet's going from Alaska to New Zealand, they're still going to have to fly several thousand kilometers to get back to the likes of Greenland and Iceland and northern Scandinavia and Russia and you know, all of those areas. And they're a long journey ahead of them. And the more they're disturbed, the more they're stressed, the more of that vital energy they've built up and the less food they've been able to take on board to make sure they're in peak condition, which means that fewer of them will survive that migration. And even if they do, they're less likely to breed and, and produce on average fewer chicks because of the stress that they've experienced here in Ireland and elsewhere in, in, in this region of Europe. So I, I wish people knew more about that and had more respect for, for just what those birds will have to go through in a few weeks' time uh, because those journeys are something that we humans can't even conceive of and the stress it must take. Um, so yeah, I think that the Bartel God really brings, brings that home. Uh, remarkable birds and uh, what a privilege we can actually see that species here in Ireland. I'd urge everyone to get and see them. Yeah, and an interesting sidebar to that is that apparently when the Bartel Godwit arrives in New Zealand, the first thing it wants to do is not eat, even though it's lost half its body weight, but sleep. Sleep is more important than food. Yeah, yes, and it may well be the case that because it's allowed its digestive system partially to be reabsorbed back into its bodies, it, it physically couldn't eat and digest that food. It may well need that sleep to allow its body systems to recover and replenish themselves so that they can eventually digest food again. Uh, so uh, we still don't understand a great deal at all about birds and sleep and how that, how that, uh, how that affects them and how it's important. But I would suspect that that must be to do with the recovery that their bodies need to go through to get themselves back into, into normal land-based mode after such an exertion. Uh, but it really is remarkable they can do it. Here's another research story for you. This one really caught my eye. The heading on it uh, goes something like brainy birds shrink less as climate warms. Now, I may have just made that up, but it, uh, it pretty much goes with the story. Which is, and this touches on something we've talked about before, which is that one of the evolutionary responses to uh, climate warming is to lose size. That in itself is not too surprising because uh, there are plenty of examples of life forms which are smaller today than they were once and creatures which have got bigger. But this story is a twist because apparently, according to scientific measurements, birds whose brain makes up a larger proportion of their body weight are less susceptible to change in their body size over time with climate warming. I think I hope I've put that right. But it's interesting because it suggests that the brainier you are, the more ways you find of adapting through behaviour than through uh, actually morphological change. It is, and it just shows how no birds are the same. The different species behave in very, very different ways. For some birds, they have involved, evolved intelligence, and that's how they cope. For many other birds, they don't need to be particularly smart because they're not solving problems. They're so perfectly adapted for their own environments that uh, they don't need to solve logical problems or puzzle about food. They know exactly what they're going to eat, and that's how they how they would live. Uh, so it is it is fascinating research. Now, in terms of the, the, the body shape and size of a bird getting smaller because of climate change, there's a couple of reasons that could be. It might seem strange or, or, or I suppose, um, not really a very um, very logical idea to begin with. But actually, when you think about it is, the larger a bird is, the easier it is for that bird to keep itself warm in cold weather because they have a smaller surface area compared to their mass. The smaller a bird is, the larger its surface area is compared to its mass, so the easier it is for it to lose heat. So for small birds, it is hard for them to, harder for them to stay warm in very cold conditions than it would be for a large bird. Uh, and so therefore, if the climate is warming, uh, well, that's not such a pressure anymore. Uh, that little bit of warmth allows those, 
birds can afford to be a little bit smaller. And being smaller, when all things are equal, is actually an advantage because it means you need less food in order to maintain yourself. And um, so the smaller you are, the less your, your requirements are from your territory, from your habitat. And so going small is, is actually a very often a good strategy. Uh, sometimes though, if there's a particularly abundant food resource that other creatures aren't exploiting, you can afford then to get very, very large uh, because the food resource is abundant. And then therefore the bigger you are, the less likely you are to fall victim to predators and so on. So there's always a balancing act going on there. But if you are a small bird, um, let's say like, like a chaffinch, a very common Irish bird, um, not, not, not renowned for being particularly intelligent, they're probably fairly average as far as birds go, their lives revolve around eating seeds. And all they can do is eat seeds. And if they're hungry, well, they'll have to find some seeds. And that's what they do. So everything is about trying to find seed. Um, that beak that they have is for crushing seed. And if the seed disappears and they can't find any more seed, they die. And that's the only other option they have. Uh, so um, they, so therefore, that, that's a type of bird, for example, that getting smaller might be an advantage to it because um, as the climate warms, it doesn't need then for it to find as much food because uh, it doesn't need to keep so warm or keep its body temperature. It's easy for it to regulate it. Now, if you look at uh, more generalist birds, which tend to be the most intelligent ones, the perfect example in Ireland would be members of the crow family, so hooded crows, magpies, birds like that. They're not specialised in any one kind of food, uh, which is a real key to their success, because if you specialise in one type of food, if it's if there's lots of it, that's great, but if all of a sudden it disappears, you, your whole species dies. If you're a generalist, you can exploit food resources as they become available. So with, with, um, with a magpie or a crow, they can eat seed just like the chaffinch can, that's absolutely fine for them, but if the seed disappears, well, they can eat worms, so they can catch mice, or they can raid the bins, or they can go and catch shellfish on the beach or they can hunt birds in nests and, or eat eggs whatever they would do and that's about how that they survive but of course to do that they are coming up across novel problems all the time they, they haven't evolved necessarily to, to know exactly how to exploit those kind of foods so rather than do it by instinct they have to think about it and that is where intelligence comes in it's having to solve these problems in order for survival and of course when they're intelligent they are able to find other sources of food which means that the normal pressures around the environment around temperature and food supply aren't as, as strong on them as they would be on a more specialized bird. So that would suggest to me at least, my, 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 my guess would be, that is why the birds with the larger brains, which we assume to be more intelligent, are the ones therefore are less affected by climate change because they can adapt and cope with it better. We also find with intelligence in birds, a lot of the, the birds that are particularly intelligent tend to live in social groups. And that's the same with mammals as well. If you think of the most intelligent animals on the planet, including us humans, with a couple of exceptions, the one common denominator there is that we live in social groups. If you think, think about humans, think about all our fellow apes, think about all the primates, monkeys. There are some solitary ones, but the, the general rule is they're together. In terms of birds, crows live in flocks, parrots live in flocks. They're very, very smart. Uh, and part of the intelligence side of it too, it seems to be able to being able to read each other's cues, to understand how your neighbor is feeling, uh, to be able to respond to that in an intelligent way and cooperate. And that's where intelligence comes in. And then, you know, the converse of that is birds that are very solitary. So take owls, for example, live by themselves. And owls obviously have a great uh, reputation for being very wise and intelligent. Absolute nonsense. Owls are really, really thick, to put it bluntly. <laughs> uh, they're not smart in any way. And they don't need to be because they're killing machines. They hunt mice and so on. Um, so that's why they don't need the intelligence. But I think we're only really, obviously, when we look at intelligence too, we're looking at it through the lens of what we humans view as being intelligence. And intelligence uh, might not necessarily correlate with what we think it is. Though um, one thing we associate with intelligence and which may be borne out in the history of life on Earth is the ability to adapt behaviour. Um, obviously, that's particularly useful when it allows changing diet um, as, an, uh, as availability of food changes. Although it makes sense to specialise in a, in a food-rich environment or in an ecological niche such as the one that owls occupy, um, being able to change behaviour uh, can be critical. 
Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the thing, of course, with evolution is that it's it's reactive. It can't predict the future and doesn't take an account, any account of future changes. So a really clear, stark example of that in the world of birds would be all the different flightless species that have evolved on remote islands. Because, you know, those birds, you know, the places like, um, you know, the, there's many islands all around the Indian Ocean and, and, and in the Pacific and in the Atlantic where there have been flightless birds, many of which are now extinct because of um, the human pressures. Either humans hunted them to extinction or often what's happened uh, introduced rats and mice and other animals like goats that have, have killed them and destroyed them or habitat or destroyed their eggs and chicks and they haven't survived the, the dodo of Mauritius is the classic example of that hunted by humans but also probably wiped out by feral pigs and by rats ultimately that destroyed their nests or the mowers of New Zealand exactly right and the thing is they, they arrived their ancestors to arrive at these remote islands their ancestors would have flown they maybe would have got caught up in one of those storm events we were talking about earlier and gone off course and landed there and just made the, be- the best go of it they could and over thousands and thousands of years evolved gradually into new species sometimes with bearing little resemblance to their to their ancestors but of course mammals couldn't do the same thing with the exception of some bats which which don't hunt birds so uh, what would happen is they would often find themselves in a new environment where there were no predators and when you find yourself in that sort of situation when you're a bird all of a sudden being able to fly it's a bit of a hindrance um, because the fact is that if you take flight there's a risk you could be blown out to sea and you'd die so over time what happens because there are no predators around selecting against it if evolution would favour the loss of flight because it's pointless and it carries a risk that isn't necessary anymore and that all works out really well and you know, these birds thrived for, for, for in many cases for millions of years in these islands then all of a sudden humans come on the scene with predators with us with the rats the mice foxes stoats whatever we bring with us these birds have no defence they may even no fear of humans and of course all of a sudden they're gone often within just a couple of years. In other words, evolution can lead you down dead ends. Yes, and I think what we have to look at is for the vast majority of species that have ever lived, evolution has led them down dead ends. Uh, and you know, I think that that's, that's something that always strikes me as particularly poignant and tragic when you when you prepare of a species becoming extinct, particularly if it's a if it's a unique member of its of a family of its family. Like the you know, we're seeing that now with the the um, group of birds called the Hawaiian honeycreepers in Hawaii. The vast majority of those have died out. Those Hawaiian thrushes completely extinct. They are lineages that stretch back over a hundred million years. Uh, you know, they've they've been evolving and new evolution coming along new, new species being formed gradually over time and then all of a sudden after all of that longevity just in the blink of an eye us humans have completely erased that whole lineage and I find that tragic of course because success and failure are abstract of our making we tend to put the failure label on anything that vanished before our reign at the top of the tree as we see it Many such were, like the dinosaurs, actually extremely successful. Successful or unsuccessful at a particular point in time is probably as much as you can say. Yes, because because the conditions don't remain static; they change constantly. And uh, if you know, if, if we were able to go back in time to. You know, exactly the same location we are right now in Ireland, but go back 100 million years, 200 million years, 500 million years. People will be astonished by what it was like. We could be a desert, we could be a tr- in a tropical jungle, we could be. It, it just it's changed so differently. And obviously, you know, the, the animals that are sort of stuck in that piece of land, they have to evolve in order to cope with that. And you know, there's a, and this is all done by random chance. It's just chance mutations that arise that confer um, and a survival advantage that then means that those owners of those genes are more likely to pass them on to their offspring. Um, so it's, it's this amazingly subtle yet really powerful process that takes place over a very, very long period of time. And of course, when you look at it, we humans, we, we think we judge everything by, the, by, by our own success. Like right now, we would say it's the pinnacle of the world. You know, we're so important. As species 
go, we are incredibly young. Um, there are many, the majority, majority of species on this planet have been around for far longer than we humans have. We're about 200,000 years old as a species. And uh, uh, there were other human species before us which have gone by the wayside. Um, you know, there's many, many other species in the genus Homo which are now gone. And we're the sole surviving members of that lineage. Um, you, one could argue that um, perhaps actually the, the hominid diversity, the diversity of man has actually decreased massively over the last few years and that we're on the way out. Um, and again, the story of humans won't be written, I suppose, until maybe millions of years after we're gone. Busily running towards our own evolutionary dead end, probably. Well, look, changing the subject almost completely, Niall, <laughs> what have you been excited by recently in terms of bird sightings? Oh, it, it's been a it's been a really exciting few months. Actually, there's been lots happening at the moment. Uh, I always like uh, I always like to watch winter thrushes. That's one of my favourite things. And we've had a good influx now near where I live of both red wings and field fairs, two of my the winter birds that I like the most. So um, the the field fair it's a, a large thrush with a grey head and sort of a grey rump and, and and sort of lovely sort of chevron markings on its flanks, and they migrate into us from sort of central and eastern Europe, parts of Scandinavia. They only come here in the winter, and then often with them there are the a smaller thrush called the red wing, which is a sort of red patch under its wing on its side and a sort of very pale stripe over its eye. Uh, and they come to us mainly from Iceland, a few from Scandinavia, but mainly from Iceland. And I just I just love watching those in, in the fields. And the field, in fact, is usually where you'll see them, in my experience. They're parked in the middle of a field in a group. Yes, that, that's right. And they're finding finding worms, um, finding any, any food really they can find. They also love to eat apples. That's a great lifeline for them in very, very bad weather. And um, I, when I watch these flocks, I often keep an eye out. And often you'll see our resident thrush species, black bird, song thrush and mistle thrush uh, together in the flocks with these birds too. And I had the amazing experience last weekend of going up uh, to a field not too far from, from Newry. Um, it was just a place in southern Armagh, uh, just over the border of Northern Ireland. And there's one of these big flocks of thrushes there. But it's been known over, for the last couple of months, there's been another thrush in with them, a bird called a ring owl, which was formerly a, quite a widespread bird breeding in the uplands of Irish mountains. And it's become incredibly scarce. Yeah, I associate ring owls with mountains. Yeah, yes, and they really do like those craggy upland kind of areas, and that's where you that's where you would uh, that's where you generally find them. Um, now, that's one that climate change has really caused problems for in Ireland. They, they used to breed in the Wicklow Mountains, for example. They're gone from there. We, we think that a handful of pairs may cling on in Donegal and in Kerry, but that's probably it. But regardless of that, this bird is supposed to currently be either in Spain or in North Africa. That's where they spend the winter. So the fact that one is hanging around in, in the depths of winter in a field in Northern Ireland is quite unusual. But went I went up to see it because it had been reported there, and I. I was doing other things in the area as well. So I went up anyway, took, took a while to look for it. Found it there in the field with, with the field fairs, red wings, blackbirds, song thrushes and missile thrushes and realised in one view, I was seeing six members of the same genus, the genus Turdus. Yeah. And I know that some people might be listening to this and think that's that's an incredibly nerdy thing to get excited about, but it really is amazing. That kind of that kind of diversity, I really was thrilled um, because that's not something that, you, that happens every day. And it raises an interesting question for me, which is, how much does family grouping influence one species' tolerance of another? Well, certainly in the winter when it's not when it's not the breeding season, there's certainly an affinity there. Um, they do seem to associate with each other. Maybe whether that's because they eat similar food, so they're watching out for each other because they know if, if this thrush has found food, I could probably get eat that same food. Um, there's more pairs of eyes looking out for predators together, so they do have a sort of a, a loose. I won't even say cooperation. Maybe that's too strong a word for it, but there's certainly an association, um, association amongst them there. 
Actually, I was watching something just very interesting about uh, talking about evolution and genes and so on, about how thrushes have colonized uh, have colonized uh, Europe and where they came from. So it seems that the, the thrush family, the thrush group in this genus Turdus originated in Africa a long, long time ago. And uh, there was an original expansion into Europe and Asia, that region. And from that, those original colonized from Africa, that's they were the ancestors of the birds we know today as song thrush, uh, missile thrush, field fair, and some related species that you get across Asia as well. Uh, and, but then it turns out that other birds like the blackbird uh, and uh, some, some other birds like the, the ring owl again as well that's another example of this they had a different origin their ancestors also came from Africa but they went across the Atlantic and turned up in the West Indies of all places it seems that the most uh, basal ancestor of that group is currently found in Jamaica and then somehow from there spent time evolving and then some species recolonized Europe from the West Indies and came found was already populated with thrushes and sort of specialized to try and fit in around those and that's where our black Blackbirds came from originally. It's not that the blackbirds migrated from the West Indies. They're not found there, but some early ancestor of theirs did and eventually became blackbird and ring owl and these other species that we now know in Europe too. So it's two separate colonization events, which I find just amazing. And we wouldn't have known that until recently. It wasn't for the, the DNA studies that are doing happening now. You couldn't tell by looking at them. And in the months ahead, in terms of bird watching activity, what are you looking forward to, Niall? Well, this is always an exciting time of year because the first of our spring migrants are not far away. Uh, I always associate St. Patrick's Day with the arrival of the very first migrants. So very soon we'll be seeing our first sand martins, sandwich terns and wheat ears of the season. And they'll be coming through. So for, for them, uh, it's already getting into the breeding season. I'll talk in the breeding season. Some of our early breeders will be starting soon too. Birds like ravens will be nesting. Uh, they're an early nester. Crossbills nest very early as well. Uh, but then of course, as time goes on and more birds come in, we get through to probably what's my favourite thing of the whole year, which is the dawn chorus, which really peaks in the start of May. But it starts ramping up from March on really. And birds are singing already, but you're start, it gets more and more and louder each morning and I find that just remarkable so I think that's probably what I'm most excited about and of course when migration's happening there's always a chance of some rarity turning up uh, unexpectedly which is always one of the thrills that keep people bird watching I've seen a lot of discussion on there are and, and if you look at our geographic location it kind of stands to reason that would be the case because we're the first port of call for birds that have crossed the Atlantic from from, from North America with the very last port of call where a bird that's heading maybe from Scandinavia or Siberia where they could stop before they go too far and end up at the ocean and we're also then on the flyway that's going down from the Arctic down to Africa so a lot of birds pass through here and because we're quite temperate as I said earlier it doesn't get too cold here in the winter a lot of these birds can find refuge here in a way that they maybe couldn't if they're in somewhere like central France or Poland or Germany or something like that. So we, we, we do punch above our weight when it comes to that. But also with birds like the glossy ibis that you mentioned, we are seeing an increasing number of records of those. Uh, the little egret, this white heron, which colonized Ireland around 1997, become very common here now. We're starting to see multiple numbers of birds like uh, great white egrets and cattle egrets and spoonbills. Yeah, uh, spoonbills are turning up as well. And these are birds that are very much associated with the Mediterranean and with Africa. And what that says to me is that I don't think it's any coincidence. Uh, climate is changing. We're seeing some of these birds now. You wouldn't even call them vagrants to Ireland anymore. They're certainly very, very scarce and, and unpredictable visitors, but they're staying and they're hanging around for months at a time and coming back more and more consistently. And that's how colonization begins. Uh, so give it another few years and these birds may all be breeding in Ireland. Maybe we'll have our own ibis colonies here in Ireland, which is something, you know, even 20 years ago, no one would have believed that could be possible. One of Ireland's great attractions is the number and range of visiting species we host. 
Oh yes, and that's what keeps birdwatchers coming here from all over the world, um, especially birdwatchers from around Europe who want to add birds to their European list because Ireland is the best place to do that in, in many ways. A good example of that would be seabirds uh, because there are many species of seabird that wander around the Atlantic and uh, seeing them often for most birdwatchers would require a lot of luck and maybe getting out into a boat and going out in terrible conditions. Ireland is one of the only places where you can perch yourself on a headland along the west or the south coast and see these birds from land. Um, also, we're known internationally for having a really high diversity of gulls. Now, I know a lot of people aren't very excited about gulls, perhaps even hate them. Yep, we've touched on gulls before. They're a fascinating group in themselves, but unfortunately for the less knowledgeable like myself, they can be very hard to tell apart. Oh, they absolutely can. And uh, some people uh, absolutely hate that about them. Some people really relish the challenge, but it is a challenge, certainly, especially for the, for the ones that aren't in full adult plumage, because when they're juveniles and immatures, they're, they're, they can be really, really difficult. Um, but, you know, if someone does want to get to grips with that, Ireland is probably the best place in the world to do so, because you see a wider range of different plumages than anywhere else I can think of. Um, so that's, um, that, that's really good as well. And of course, um, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to, and we should be very proud of here in Ireland, are um, some of the really special birds we have. So um, Rosie Turn, for example, I know one we've spoken about before. Um, Europe's biggest colony of this beautiful seabird species is found on Rockabill Island um, off the coast of Skerries in North County, Dublin, uh, where Birdwatch Ireland wardens it with the support of the National Parks and Wildlife Service. So already we're, we're getting preparation ready to get our wardens out there for, for the end of April, start of May, just before the birds will arrive back. And this is a bird that now a lot of birdwatchers in Ireland will take for granted. But anyone else in Europe actually seeing one? It's so difficult. Um, and yet here we are, even at the end of the breeding season, you can see them places like Docky or Sandymount Strand when they left Rockabill. Uh, so yeah, that's something I think that sometimes we can, we can tend to do ourselves down in Ireland too. And I think also familiarity can breed contempt as well, because I'm often contacted um, by birdwatchers from places like America or South Africa or, or Australia who are coming to Ireland for the first time, maybe their first visit to Europe. And they often ask me, there's a certain list of species that they want to see. Uh, and it's birds that if they were rare, we would go crazy for them as well. One of the ones everyone wants to see is the blue tit. Um, you know, easy to see. You have them in your garden. Everyone has them in their gardens. Imagine that was a rare vagrant. Something as stunning as that. Uh, beautiful. What right-minded person isn't charmed by a blue tit, Niall? Absolutely. And I think, you know, that, that's not surprising people want to see those. Um, another one everyone wants to see is a kingfisher, quite understandably. I think there's lots of listeners here who'd like to see those too, again, for, because of the colours of them. Uh, but also um, another one is, of course, the puffin. I remember, I remember uh, a good few years ago now, I was at um, the visitor centre at the Cliffs of Moher, a wonderful place. We had a, a, we were doing work with them there. We had a sort of a, a seabird weekend with Birdwatch Ireland there at the Cliffs. It was great. And so we, myself and my colleagues and some volunteers were there with our telescopes. We were showing people the birds on the cliffs. And the thing was, you know, the Cliffs of Moher are, are fantastic. They're a great tourist attraction, really, really worth visiting in their own right. But I think a lot of tourists are going there because the guidebook says they should or because the coach trips, the coach is on the route and it takes them there and they go see it and tick it off the list. They want to see it. Don't get me wrong. It's well worth seeing. Uh, but when we had the people there and when we showed them their first ever puffin through a telescope, the cliffs were forgotten about. Uh, we had people bursting into tears. We had people saying that it was the best day of their lives. Um, and they had never expected this. And I think partly the surprise, they weren't expecting there was any birds there at all. And I think sometimes in Ireland, we really need to sell that experience more. And we have a lot to offer here. And I think that uh, people find that, uh, that surprising. You know, even, even things like as simple as, you know, around around Dublin there are so many urban foxes I grew up with foxes all around me in South County Dublin and I see them, see them all the time um, for a lot of people even I know I know 
know in, in many parts of Britain it's the same. For a lot of people living from continental Europe, seeing a fox is quite a thrill. Um, you know, we kind of think of it as pests, but actually we, that's, we're taking them for granted. For a lot of people, that's a really um, exciting wildlife encounter. So, you know, I suppose it's all in the eye of the beholder, really. It's certainly part of the experience of travelling, the changes in flora and fauna between countries. Niall, I could do this forever, but thanks as ever. And uh, we'll close by once again urging listeners to join Birdwatch Ireland. I would echo that. Thank you, Connor, indeed. So birdwatcharland.ie for all the details there. And uh, yeah, if you've made it this far through the podcast, you're exactly the kind of person we need to join us. So uh, please do sign up.